1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in Sports. My name is Amelia Weber and I'm the host for today and I have Dr. Michael Friedman with us, a lecturer in the Physical Cultural Studies group within the Kinesiology Department at the University of Maryland College Park. Welcome Dr. Friedman. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing fine, uh, Amelia, and uh, thank you for having me on.
1: Thanks for joining. Definitely excited for this conversation. Uh, Dr. Friedman has a book called Mallparks that will be out July 15th with Cornell University Press. um, And we're going to be talking about it today. So uh, jumping right in because the introduction sort of gets at your background, uh, a really good place to start. What brought you to this work? How'd you get there? Uh, Introduce uh, yourself to our listeners here a little bit.
0: Well, in many ways, this is a project I've been working on my entire life. Um, uh, I'd like to say that I was uh, a cultural geographer, a sport geographer, before I even knew that you could study sport uh, as an academic discipline or geography was more than the capital of 50 states. Uh At the age of 13, my father drove me around the country. We went to 21 different baseball stadiums in the summer of 1984, and that was such a transformative experience for me, just understanding or just beginning to get exposed to that relationship between sport and the city, uh, the, the ways that Uh, Cities really began to identify themselves in and through their sports teams. Uh, Obviously, I didn't recognize any of this when I was 13 years old, but it, it, it certainly was an appreciation that I began gaining for that significance of space. Uh, at, at a very early age, the significance of sport uh, for how we understand and perceive cities. Uh, I'll also say that uh, uh, a bit of a background, family background, in real estate development. My grandfather was very involved in uh, the development around Montgomery County, Maryland, back in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Um, my stepfather was in retail. Uh, so when we, we would travel around the country, uh, going sightseeing, And when I say sightseeing, I don't mean S I G H T like the Liberty bell. I mean, like S I T E as in a strips, uh, center in suburban Philadelphia.
1: Uh, that's really interesting. And, uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, you're clearly a big baseball fan. I am as well, uh. We see that that first chapter, sort of, in the book called "Leading Off," of course. But uh, getting into a little bit more of sort of the theoretical background or key terms uh, for the book, what you use, um, chapter two is called "Producing Consumption Space." Um, could you define some of those key terms or ideas that you use in the book and talk about in that first, in that sort of second chapter within the first part?
0: Well, I mean, a lot of academic work is about finding. Uh, theorists whose work speaks to you, who um, that, that, that you read and it helps you make sense of the world around you. And I think the, for me, the, the work of Henri Lefebvre is um, very keeping in the ways in which I understand how the world works. It's this idea of the production of space that uh space is not a passive vessel it is not something that operates outside of the relationships of power but it is something that is very much implicated uh in those relationships uh, the ways in which uh those who are powerful are able to um, exert their power and in this case uh Derive economic capital or cultural capital, social capital, uh, in and through the creation of these baseball stadiums and the production of not only the stadium itself architecturally, but as it exists relationally to, uh, the broader city, uh, around it and the broader urban fabric, um, so Lefebvre's work really, as I said, speaks to me in that way. The the second major influence uh, is George Ritzer uh, and his theories of consumption. Now, at Maryland, I was very fortunate to have ha- taken uh, three classes with George, who, by the way, is, his wife Sue was my first grade teacher in 1976. Uh, so that's speaking of just going full circle uh, with education. but George uh, tremendous theorist, tremendous you know in the ways that he understands the ways in which consumption is produced. Uh, there's there's a tendency you know Marx really focused on questions of production and left questions of consumption um, more or less unanswered. Uh, but what, what Ritzer does, and actually a lot of what Lefevre did uh, after World War II, is think about the ways in which consumption activities are structured and are productive of economic relationships in and of themselves, that, that, that consumption is not this black box in which individuals Go out and purchase things, but it is very much a way that uh, social relations, uh, economic relations, uh, are structured. I mean, uh, George writes about McDonaldization, the the ways in which um, you know the theory, yeah, the the, the production practices of McDonald's uh, defines a lot of the production. Sp- uh, consumption spaces, uh, that, that we go into efficiency, quantification, uh, use of technology. Um,
1: right. We see a lot of these, uh, we see a lot of these, uh, still today, these sort of ways that consumption is produced in different, uh, spaces from baseball stadiums and the associated development, to strip malls, like you say, to McDonald's, it seems like more and more of our, uh, society is being we 're being produced to consume something, right
0: well uh, I mean it, it, i'll I'll jokingly say that baseball is not the American pastime. it's really shopping uh it's really spending money and w- we go to these spaces, whether it's a shopping center, a theme park, a baseball stadium uh a department store, a funeral home, a museum. we're going to buy experiences and you know it, it it's it's funny mastercard. Uh, you know, had ha, ha, the set of ads priceless. It's these experiences that we buy. It doesn't matter how much we spend on them because what matters is the way we feel and and what we get out of it from an emotional uh, perspective. And, and that is much more how we consume at the beginning of the 21st century uh, than any time in the past. We're not consuming to satisfy our needs. We are consuming to enjoy these experiences.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit of, uh, about the some of the meanings that you describe in terms of especially thinking about baseball teams, right? Meanings that are ascribed in functional ways or symbolic ways to these spaces. And I've, as you said, the physical space that we interact uh, in these experiences or where are we going are really important, right? Impact everything about it and our thought through. So I guess I was curious to hear a little bit more about thinking about those sort of different uses or how people ascribe meaning to spaces and places.
0: Well, I, I mean, I think a lot of, uh, you know, the name of the book itself, Mall Park, uh, is a portmanteau, taking together, I mean, ballpark uh, as, as being uh, essential, but also being you know shopping mall and a theme park. And in these spaces, uh, especially the theme park, you know we're going to be we we go to these spaces to escape from our everyday, you know, the quotidian parts of life, you know, where we work from nine to five, where we raise children or interact with people. And it's kind of that normal experience. But then we have these other experiences. We seek out tourism. We seek out things that elevate us, that take us out of the normal day to day. And we go to a baseball stadium and first off, there is the communion with tens of thousands of other people that, that there are very few spaces in American life where we are parts of large physical crowds Uh, so much of our life you know either we're dealing one-on-one with people we're in small groups of people or we are mediated through television or the internet and it's really a a a one-way you know unidirectional experience but in 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 a baseball stadium um you know as long as you're not a fan of the Oakland Athletics, uh, you are surrounded by tens of thousands of people, and your cheering is their cheering. Um, you know, the ups and downs, the excitement of the moment, the disappointment uh, of losing, the exhilaration of winning, and within a Span of a two and a half hour baseball game, you know, you go through the ups and downs as you are anticipating your team doing well or dreading falling behind, and it's it's just that emotional roller coaster that you're on. And again, you're sharing this experience with thousands of other people, and then there is kind of at, at, at one aspect there's that 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 horizontal engagement that you're having with these thousands of people but then you're also uh tied you know we could say vertically but you're tied historically into a much deeper um history a, a much deeper set of experiences that go back decades, generations, even a century. You know, at Fenway Park in Boston, you literally can sit in the same physical seat where your grandfather or grandmother sat 85 years ago to, to cheer on the Red Sox just as you are doing so. so. So not only are you in this moment surrounded by thousands of people, you are part of this history extending back, even as an Orioles fan as I am, uh, extending back 70 years of the Orioles in Baltimore that I kind of, you know, even if, Memorial Stadium is 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 long gone. Um, you know, it's still part of my memory, it's still part of the memories of people who are, you know, really in their 40s and older. And it's that connection to the past where I can say, hey, I cheered for Eddie Murray and my stepfather, who is 87 years old, you know, can tell me about cheering, you know, remembering the day the the Orioles, the parade that the Orioles came to town in or watching Brooks Robinson or being friends with Jim Palmer. And again, this uh, historical connection that is made, it's this great continuity with the past as well as communion in the present that I think makes sport rather unique and special.
1: Yeah, that collective emotional attachment is really it is special from my own experiences as a fan. Right. Um, We're going to move on a little bit to the spatial practices of baseball stadiums, which is your second part of the book. Um, in the first chapter, chapter three, within that, you talk about grounds, ballparks, and super stadiums, sort of taking us through some different development practices of these baseball stadiums, of these sites of emotional connection uh, that you describe take us through. So, um I was curious if you'd be able to describe the practices you use in your articulations of those different iterations of baseball stadium development. I'm thinking about urban consumption and aesthetic practices that you talk about within, The chapter, but um, could you describe some of those practices and how they influence your analysis?
0: Right. I mean, I I think the most important place to start with this is understanding that from the time William Kammire in 1862 opened the Union grounds, a baseball ground, a ballpark, a, a super stadium, a mall park, whatever, has always been about consumption it has been about how do we get a person to pay good money to watch high-quality sport? Uh, you know, Kammeier, as he built his union grounds, you know, built a, 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 a big fence around it with a couple of gates in which... If you wanted to come in and see the baseball game inside, you had to put good money down. You know, and ever since that that moment, that commodification, well, there is commodification that started in the 1850s, but since this permanent baseball ground was established, entrepreneurs have been figuring out how to charge. A little bit more how to provide additional value for money, how to get people to spend money on more things and on different things. So the the, the DNA of the mall park, you know, begins 160 years ago in Brooklyn, New York, at this very rudimentary you know uh, baseball grounds the union grounds uh and, and it's an evolution that took place over time it's charles weigman putting uh permanent concession stands uh, into weigman park which then becomes Wrigley Field as uh, uh cu- as the cubs purchase uh the 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 stadium from 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 Wiegemann who built it, uh, to uh, uh, for the the Federal League in in 1914. You know, it's these massive municipal super stadiums opening in the 1950s, as civic leaders are are saying, we want to claim that our place is significant. We want. <clears throat> to be a major league city. And part of being a major league city, part of being important, part of being significant and serving populations in the hundreds of thousands into the millions is to have this space of mass communion where people can come together and watch a baseball game Watch a football game, watch a tractor pull, watch a concert, have a high school graduation, go to a political rally, see the Pope, to have these mass events in a space uh, holding tens of thousands, Uh, not not to necessarily say that the stadium in this regard has a lot to do with the Nuremberg rallies uh, of Hitler and the Nazi party in the 1930s, but in some regards that there is an understanding that these mass gatherings have a power and impact going beyond just kind of the, I was there. Now, of course, television also comes in in the 1950s and allows for mass mediated experiences at a level, you know, really not considered, uh, possible before that. Uh, but short of television, you know, before television, you, you know, cities really thought that they needed these mat the, these spaces for mass gatherings and, uh, you know, and, and I think sport facilities in many ways, that's part of their DNA.
1: Yeah. You said something about how, you know, this community can use it. And I think of a small example, but when I was uh, 14, because my baseball team made it to the championship of the city league, we got to play at PNC park in Pittsburgh where I'm from. So those sort of options, um, those sort of options for the community, uh, are really unique and valuable in it. And I see where it sort of connects to the space connects to the place. Um, But something you mentioned about sort of uh, spectacular consumption and where does, uh, I think you mentioned that or cathedrals of consumption, where does consumption play into these, uh, this development practices uh, for the communities, right? You talk about it being a place for these urban communities, these urban cities, but where does uh, consumption and if, Defining cathedrals of consumption or spectacular consumption uh, helps here. Definitely uh, feel free to do that.
0: Well, I mean, first I'll start, uh, you know, in terms of George Ritzer's work, um, as he writes about spectacle as being very essential to these developments, uh, to, to these spaces of consumption you know that that i'm sure many listeners you know you think if you think about the first time you went to McDonald's or the first time you took your children to McDonald's uh it, it, you know, there's something wonderful about McDonald's the first couple of times you go with the happy meal and the playground and the clown and the characters and the you know the food and all of its unique and special and after the fall of the soviet union um you know there's i i i remember seeing images from red square of, of, of the the red square mcdonalds where russians are lining up around the corner to go to experience mcdonalds and the first time you go to mcdonalds it is an experience and the second time, it's less of an experience. And the third time's, you know, even less so. And by the, the fifth or sixth time, you go to McDonald's, it's McDonald's. It's cheap food, mass produced, um, done quickly. And the the children yelling and screaming to go to McDonald's is not exactly a, a a feeling that you enjoy. It's not a conversation you enjoy, and the the bloom is off the proverbial rose. And what Ritzer writes about is that as experiences become commonplace, well. There, there has to be a reason for people to come back. You know, you come, you you go to McDonald's because it's cheap, it's fast, and it's convenient. So you can get food, you can get it quickly, and you don't have to go that far to get it. Um, there's nothing special about that experience. But if you're going to go to a museum, if you're going to go to uh, a shopping mall, if you can go to you know go, go to any consumption experience, there is kind of that feeling of been there, done that. So if you're going to be the 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 owner of one of these consumption spaces, the question is, you know, the question is. Okay, what do what what do I have to sell? Well, what you're selling are experiences as I talked about earlier. And people will not repeat similar experiences. They want to see something new. They want to see something different. They want to see something unique. So that's where we get these cathedrals of consumption where On one hand, it's about creating that spectacle. Because if we think about cathedrals, I mean, you know, what's more commonplace than religion? You go every Sabbath, Saturday, or Sunday, and you pick up the same prayer book and you read the same prayers, and you have that same sort of experience, but what a cathedral does it elevates the experience there's something mystical or magical or um you know mysterious in that religious experience and you know obviously you're you're not going to get that same type of um religious experience in a cathedral of consumption, unless of course it's a megachurch that is des, you know, designed following these principles uh, but there's going to be something within a cathedral of consumption that elevates the experience beyond the mundane, beyond the ordinary and it is that elevation beyond the mundane and ordinary that Will bring a person back to consume again. You improve the spectacle, you enhance the spectacle, you change what the spectacle is going to be. And instead of just going, you know, it's not just the museum, it's the museum with the Van Gogh exhibition. And that's followed by. The Monet exhibition, and that's followed by the Picasso exhibition, and you know, and, and that's what draws people into the same space again and again. You know, so that's kind of the 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 first aspect as we look at cathedrals of consumption. Now, cities themselves are coming from this, to, coming to this from a diff, very different area and perspective, because for cities uh, during the, the, the 1950s, 1960s into the 1970s, they experienced substantial disinvestment. Cities that before, you know, and I'm talking mostly about the, the industrial Northeast and Midwest here, but cities where which were the centers of production Uh, after World War II, went into decline. Uh, There was white flight out to the suburbs. Um, Corporations moved uh, factories to uh, lower wage, lower regulation places. And the central government uh, stopped uh, funding you know, kind of cities by the, those Keynesian principles. The the famous headline from the New York Post in the 1970s, uh, Ford to New York City, drop dead. Um, you know, so, so we're really looking at kind of these three factors leading to disinvestment in cities that frankly became a, a self-reinforcing vicious cycle as cities became You know, with, with, with declining tax bases, uh, services declined, public safety declined, uh, the quality of schools, the quality of roads. And if you had the ability to move out to these new suburbs, you moved. If you were a corporation heavily invested in a city and you had the ability to move elsewhere, you moved. And cities as they 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 they're going through this decline in the 60s and 70s began saying okay how do we interrupt this decline and for many cities the solution set the easy solution set was let us become centers of consumption let us clean up our waterfront put a waterfront mall let's put a convention center close by. Let's have a convention center hotel and three other hotels. And since we are having all these hotels downtown, let's make sure we have a couple of museums and you know places that 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 people can go. And let's celebrate our local history and heritage because you know, if you're going to the city of Baltimore, you're not just going to a place, you're going to a place that had Fort McHenry, where the Star-Spangled Banner was written. You had the city of Edgar Allan Poe. There is a local history to Baltimore that exists nowhere else. So that's how cities in and of themselves create these tourist bubbles, these landscapes of consumption that, that, that Ritzer talks about, where you put several cathedrals together. And for a lot of cities, baseball stadiums starting in the 1990s kind of became another way to increase the spectacle, to give visitors something new or different, because everybody by the 1980s, everybody was building festival marketplaces on waterfronts. I mean, I lived in Nashville, Tennessee at the time, and there was a lake with a festival marketplace that was built there. It did very well for about five, six years, and then people were like, this is an artificial lake with a shopping mall. And then it really stopped doing well. again. So uh, convention centers, everybody had convention centers. And these areas, these festival marketplaces were full of Cheesecake factories and hard rock cafes and everything was alike. Everything was the same. Everything had become homogenized. And cities basically by the 1990s were like, okay, what are we going to do different to bring people in? And it was, well, let's build a new sports stadium and use that as a way to attract people downtown.
1: So, and that that's what you're thinking of when you uh, sort of talk about a mall park that era we've as we've sort of we've seen we've gotten there but that's what you're thinking of as when you talk about the mall park.
0: yeah a- absolutely because we're, we're, we're talking about um, whereas let's say these first three generations baseball stadiums uh, they're very insular buildings. You know, even if the stadium is trying to push itself out into the neighborhood, it's constrained by a fence, by a wall by by gates that that basically say, "Come into our space to consume the super stadiums that were built in between the fifties and seventies they're about bringing people in from downtown, getting them off the highway, putting them in a parking lot and getting them into the building. It's not about going out and being part of the city.
1: Those stadiums are so distinctive when you think of those cookie cutters, right? Every every place had it, those super stadiums, but definitely very car oriented. And then we see a different sort of urban uh, motto and urban uh, motivations when we get into that next uh, phase in stadium development.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, for instance, when they built Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati in the 19, in nineteen seventy, it opened up, and 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 the literature about the stadium makes a very big deal about how it's sitting on top of a four thousand space parking garage, in addition to the parking that is around it you know, that, that you could get in and out of the Houston Astrodome had 50 lanes for cars to get in and out of its 20,000 space parking lot. So it's, it's not a, so, so it's about the stadium itself was a destination. You parked your car, you got out of your car, you went into the stadium you enjoyed the game. You got you left went out to your car, got back into your car and you drove out on the highway and you drove home. For football games, you got there a couple or, a couple hours early, set up a barbecue and uh, enjoyed a you know some tailgating before the game. But you didn't venture outward from the stadium itself into the surrounding community. That just wasn't a consideration or a concern of the designers. Actually, they were more than happy to carve out this small space in downtown, put walls around the parking lot or essentially fence off the parking lot So all the suburbanites coming in didn't have to interact with the city itself. So they wanted an insular space, but by the 1990s, um, cities were like, well, we've created these tourist bubbles. We've create, we've invested millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to create this consumption area downtown. And we want people to engage in consumption, to go into the restaurants and into the bars and go shopping and, you know, drop off their stuff in their car as they go to the game, as, as they're about to experience the game. So it wasn't about the stadium being a destination to itself. As much as the stadium is a magnet that will attract people into this tourist bubble, into this landscape of consumption, to, to, to where instead of kind of the, the, the sporting event being a three-hour experience or, you know, kind of a three-hour get in your car, drive downtown, spend three hours out of your car, get back in your car and go home. It was, well, come in t- uh, an extra two hours early and do a little bit of shopping or you know, get some dinner before the game because there's a lot of really good restaurants in the tourist bubble, right? Or the drink after the game. You and, know. The, and the drink after the game. So instead of being downtown for three hours just at the stadium, you've now, been downtown for six hours and you're spending your money at the stadium, but you're also spending money in other areas of this tourist landscape that that the city has invested so much in creating.
1: Yeah. Awesome. That was a great discussion. We hit a lot of points about the sort of the second part of the book. Um, you answered my question about the different spatial practices of the mall park and how that changed from past iterations of the stadium. So I don't even need to ask that one. I'm going to take a quick break here and we'll get back with the rest of the uh, part three and part four of the book. Uh, welcome back to New Books in Sports. Uh, I'm Amelia Weber with Professor Michael Friedman. We are talking about mall parks today. Um, getting into part three of uh, the book, Conceiving Mall Park. So you talk about, you have examples from Camden Yards, Fenway Park and Dodger Stadium, Nationals Park, and Target Field in Minnesota. Um, but I wanted to first start with Camden. So could you tell us why you talk about this uh, stadium development as the first mall park? Give us a little uh, bit into Camden Yards uh, and the importance of it within the sort of part three of your book.
0: Well, I mean, I think Camden Yards. Uh, I, I describe it as the the first mall park, um, and, and I think it is for a number of different reasons. Uh, first off, the city of Baltimore, uh, you know, as I was talking about in the in the in the last segment, the city of Baltimore was uh, ha, ha, has always been an innovator uh in in the development of its tourist bubble is that other cities have copied what baltimore has done and you know baltimore has always looked for ways to um improve its tourist bubble it it built harbor place in the late 70s the National Aquarium in the early 80s uh, built a convention center expanded the Convention center and ha- has always tried to make its downtown tourist bubble something unique and special um, much less in the last few years but that's a, a different story altogether uh, but what 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 we see in um, Baltimore is not only the convergence of a city that is really focused on leveraging and maximizing the buildings in its downtown core for as consumption spaces, but then there is also very strong aesthetic preferences by the, the ownership of the Baltimore Orioles, as well as a unique industrial space that offered something different than a lot of other uh spaces, so in in many ways Camden Yards is this unique convergence where Baltimore and the state of Maryland were willing to spend money to not only keep the team, but to give the team a special stadium that would really help leverage the Inner Harbor area, draw people into the Inner Harbor area, provide a great view of the city. Uh, The team itself, uh, led by Larry Lucchino, uh, who hired uh, Janet Marie Smith, who, between Lucchino and Smith and Uh, Eli, not, yeah, Eli Jacobs, who owned the team in the uh, early 1990s, um, said that we want something architectural. We want something that isn't just kind of this um, super, you know, utilitarian super stadium, but something that 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 people can go into and have it feel like baseball, have it feel like the space that is designed for the game, not a cookie cutter stadium like Three Rivers in Pittsburgh or Veterans in Philadelphia or Riverfront in Cincinnati or Bush and 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 St. Louis that, frankly, all looked exactly the same and provided an equally bad experience if you were a baseball fan or a football fan because the space didn't work for either game. But to create a throwback stadium that reminded Luchino of growing up in Pittsburgh and going to Forbes Field where the stands surrounded a baseball diamond or could, you know, or, or a place like Ebbets field where you had kind of that, those unique characteristics created by a landlocked lot that shaped the stadium not kind of the round cookie cutter sitting in the middle of a parking lot the 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 camden yards warehouse created a very tangible physical limitation on how the stadium could be built now of course uh early plans just knocked that state that 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 warehouse down but the building itself a thousand feet long 50 feet wide eight stories tall not only was kind of this very unique and distinctive baltimore building that's historic but you could put shops in there you could put the catering facilities you could put a you know team stores and uh, team offices and all these things that the team were, you know, necessary. You know, part of the operations of a stadium. Well, now you just put it into this thousand foot building, uh, and then, well, actually, five hundred feet of which are against the stadium. The other five hundred feet, well, the 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 Maryland Stadium Authority rents the, that that out, and it's law sp- you know, law firms and uh, yeah. You- professional offices so it's kind of this building that gets renovated and becomes a a win-win for everybody
1: yeah you can really see how those uh sort of urban features are used to integrate the stadium experience with the rest of the city in a sort of real conscious effort and as we keep going back to right centered around uh consumption the ability to rent those storefronts out um but thanks for taking us through Canada a little bit. I wanted to see uh, if you wanted to talk a little bit about how older stadiums cope, or I'll give you the other option is uh, if you want to talk a little bit more about the urban governance policies that have gone into it, some of those things. We're going to get to both, but I'll let you pick well, which one. I,
0: actually, I'll, 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 I'll go a third direction, talk about the architects. Because, you know, that that, that to build a stadium like this, you need to have people that have that expertise. Now, I mean, HOK Sport now Populous—they they are the global 800-pound gorilla of the sport architecture uh, industry because they they essentially created the industry. Uh, a guy by the name of Rod Lubinsky, who uh, passed away this year. Um, in the 1970s says that there, you know, took a look around and said, we could create an architectural practice that is, is about expertise in, in in sports stadiums and can meet the unique characteristics or the specific needs of sports teams, of football teams, baseball teams, all varieties of sport and, and populace you know, ha- has done over in, in, in more than in about 40 years of, of operations, has completed f- more than 3,000 projects globally. And they, they really departed from architectural practice, which was about people in the city designing a stadium as part of the city, but not really part of the city. But it's like they, 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 you know, architecture firms just kept recreating the wheel. Whereas um, um, Populist decided, or HOK Sport, in its earliest iteration, decide, well, even before that with, with uh, uh, Lebinsky's, uh previous two firms, first uh, one that he was a partner in, then one, then a HTNB and another large um, global architectural, uh, firm infrastructure. And, and they created the sport architecture industry, and in, which is centered and housed in Kansas city, Missouri of all places. Uh, one would never expect that to, to be the case, but again, that's how influential, uh, Lubinsky and his partners, uh, uh, Joe Spear, Earl Santee, uh, in terms of baseball practice, uh, another number of other architects who've been, you know, with HOK sports since the very beginning. Um, you know, and, and they created the HOK sport way of doing it, the populist way of sport stadium construction, which, is very responsive to the needs of, of teams, the the needs of cities who are or, or governments who are paying for this. Um, you know they 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 do their job well, they do their job fast, and they they've been criticized for. A lack of creativity, but when you de- when when you deliver projects on time and under budget, uh, the 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 clients uh, tend to appreciate that much more uh, than 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 architectural critics. Um, I mean, you know, the building by Frank Gehry is unique and special and great, but. You know, maybe not the the most functional of spaces. About and, and and to be fair, Populous, when they have had uh, clients who are more creative and want something more creative, uh, won't call it a cookie cutter unique stadium, but they're all different in the same way. the The features are all unique and tailored to the city, but you know, a rooftop deck in one place and a rooftop deck in another place. And again, everything is kind of the local version of the same thing. You know, it will remind you of Pittsburgh when you're in Pittsburgh. It will remind you of Baltimore when you're in Baltimore. But when you've seen everyone, you know, I, I, I've been in 29 of the, 30 stadiums that are currently in operation and at some point you just kind of like well I saw something similar to that in St. Louis or Milwaukee or San Diego or San Francisco and it's kind of like yep I'll, I'll check that one off the
1: list. I and, definitely oh sorry go ahead Dr. Freeman. And,
0: and, and as I say to be fair where Populous has had, ha, has had clients that want more they've been able to deliver more but and for the most part, the clients want what works elsewhere, and, and 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 want to save money. So that's the client.
1: I've definitely seen that as I've uh, expanded which stadiums I've been able to visit. Uh, they're sort of like you said, similar, uh, different in the same way. Um, I think that was what you said. But uh, I'm I am still curious. How do the older stadiums keep up with uh, the new architectural firms? The uh, all the different practices of consumption that come up now,
0: right? And well, I mean that 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 what I think Populous has done. I mean, you know, aesthetically, yeah, it's all different in the same way, but they respond to the client, and the client says, "We want the luxury." Boxes. We want the club level. We want the club seats. We want to have all of these different amenities. On the concourses, we want the concession stands and the stores and the places where people are going to spend money. And we want to have the museum and we want to have the historical displays. We want all of these things that when people come to the game, That frankly, they're going to be amused while they are physically in the stadium. We want you know, from from the time people walk into a stadium till the time they leave, let's call it three hours. We don't want them ever to be bored. And a baseball fan like me, who's been watching the game for forty-five years, and can talk about these esoteric statistics with the best of them, um, you know, just give me a, a, a decent ball game moving along at a decent clip, and I'm more than happy to get into the nuances of the game, and you know, questions about strategy, and 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 if baseball teams are putting on the games for me and people who are like me uh they're going to go bankrupt rather quickly it a baseball game is an entertainment experience and these stadiums are shaped to be entertainment experiences so you don't have to love the game of baseball to enjoy your experience at the game and places like Fenway park or Wrigley field or Dodger stadium, or even the Oakland Coliseum, um, you know, they, they, they take a look at Camden yards or Jake uh, AmeriQuest park or Coors field or whatever, you know, name your corporate, you know, corporate sponsor here, park or field, never stadium. Um, and they look at all these different stadiums that have been developed, all these mall parks that have been developed, and they say, we want a piece of this. And Fenway Park, in the at, at the end of the 1990s, Red Sox ownership wanted to build a replica across the street, 45,000 seats with everything new and modern. And... The fans, you know, and and, and and people in Boston revolted against it. First there were Red Sox fans who loved Fenway Park, who formed a group to save Fenway Park, literally called Save Fenway Park. You know, there 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 were those people. There were people who lived in Fenway and owned the buildings that would be taken. There were taxpayers in Boston who are like they want us to spend five hundred million dollars on this when we have this perfectly lovely, historic Fenway Park where Babe Ruth pitched and Ted Williams played left field, and followed was followed by Carl Yastrzemski, and 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 that plan failed. And the Red Sox uh, were owned by uh, a, a trust set up by the oki family, uh, who had owned the, the Red Sox since the 1930s. And after seven, almost 70 years of owning the franchise, they sold. And at the time, there were nine different groups that, that bid on Fenway Park, and one led by Larry Lucchino, who... Uh, um, uh, Well, fronted by by Larry Lucchino, um, and John Henry, who uh, and uh, Tom Werner, who I I guess was part of the Padres ownership at the time, um, they said, "Well, we'll give a chance. We'll 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 see if Fenway Park is viable. We'll see if we can save Fenway Park. If we can make the economics work out." They hired Janet Marie Smith, uh, Lucchino, who had uh, you know again dead Baltimore with Smith as as, as the person that uh, he looked to to turn his vision into of this old fashioned ballpark. Uh, Smith was the one who was on the phone with HOK Sport and the Maryland Stadium Authority and said, "This this is how we are going to create." An old fashioned stadium, and he brought Janet Marie Smith and, and 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 said, "Let let us see if we can keep if, if Fenway Park can be financially viable. Well, first let's make sure it's not falling down. Then let's make sure that infrastructurally we can have a uh, a facility that." The players will actually want to be part of and in because, you know, nobody wants small locker rooms or a workout room where you can't get more than a couple of people into. I mean, yeah, these baseball players are getting millions, earning millions of dollars, and they get to play in all these historic ballparks, but at the same time, This is their place of business. You know, they're getting there at one o'clock in the afternoon for a seven o'clock game or 11 o'clock in the morning. And this is their workplace. So they need to be able to exercise. They need to be able to work out. They need to be able to hone their craft in an indoor batting cage or off a couple of pitchers mounts you know they need to be able to have training facilities and once the the the, the red sox established all of that could be put into place and that you know oh that, that 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 you could put a pizza oven in there without blowing half the fuses in the place which actually had been the case um you know once that that the the building in terms of its infrastructure was proper and and appropriate. Then they took a look and how, how can we make Fenway Park more financially viable? How can we put a museum in? How can we build out the concessions? How can we put everything in here that people want to go to? How can we you know create different clubs and spaces where people can spend those premium dollars uh that that really make the difference whether a stadium is viable or not whether a ballpark is viable or not and what the 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 Red sox were able to accomplish with Fenway Park is remarkable because Fenway park is you know, within the top five revenue producers, despite it being over 100 years old, you know, 110 years old, which is, again, absolutely remarkable that, you know, a, a, a facility so old could be retrofitted in this way. And then Janet Marie Smith, fresh off of... Uh, Transforming Fenway Park, uh, it, it gets uh, you know is uh, gotten on the phone by Stan, Ka- Stan Kasten who was part of the Guggenheim Group that bought the Dodgers, and Kasten had worked with uh, Smith on uh, Turner Field when Kasten ran the, the the Braves. Uh, he brought Janet Marie Smith out to Los Angeles to work on Dodger Stadium and probably the only quote-unquote stadium worth calling a stadium in baseball. I mean, Larry Lucchino would fine um, Orioles employees $5 if they used, if they said stadium, the dreaded S word. Well, Dodger Stadium is a stadium. It was built in the 1960s it celebrates los angeles car culture and but at the same time it was built in an era where kind of those consumption amenities weren't overwhelming and 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 what smith did is that she came in and transformed dodger stadium again into a mall park you know didn't really touch the that 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 the the culture and character of the facility, but you know made it so people could move between levels, which was not capable before. I mean it's quite remarkable the 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 way it was designed that you could literally walk into your level at grade from the parking lot. But it was about transforming you know, this 60s era stadium into a mall park by adding kind of these legends areas, by celebrating, se- you know, 70 years of unbelievable Dodger, you know, 60, 70 years of unbelievable Los Angeles Dodger history and even some Brooklyn Dodger history as well. You know, just ways in which the past was brought into the present were instead of going from your car to your seat back to your car, well, there was uh, places for you to, to eat at and drink at and shop in and experience the history of the Dodgers or let your kids run off and play and burn off some energy before they watch the game. And ultimately, Smith was able to transform dodger stadium in much the same way she was able to transform fenway park to to make a facility that really is useful and relevant today
1: yeah really uh those are really informative stories thanks for sharing them and sort of uh, information about how both fenway and dodger stadium become a mall park right how do we see the different iterations of mall parks how they've come about um which sort of takes us through the, that sort of finishes us up from part three of the book. Um, And just moving on to part four, sort of getting towards our wrapping up. Um, Part four is called The Future of Baseball Stadium Design. Uh, And you start talking about Truist Park in uh, the suburbs of Atlanta um, and supercharging the mall park. So uh, what is that sort of next potential iteration that you envision. I think you call it the Mall Park Village. Um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about how baseball stadium design uh, looks going forward.
0: Well, I, I mean, it is a question of where do we go from here? I, what I think populace and, and the teams and, and, and the governments that uh, own stadiums or the quasi-government a, uh, agencies that own stadiums have done is really maximize economic activity within the mall park. You know that, 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 that it's not like you can put an infinite number of clubs. I mean, the club you know, you only have so many spaces,, you know, so many seats in 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 premium locations and you can only give so many clubs and there and and fans only have so many dollars to spend inside the stadium and you can only cram so many um concession stands and shops and really you're you're you can maximize and I think the 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 designers have maximized what can be achieved, what can be realized inside the stadium, which created an opportunity of everybody looking at it and saying, "Okay, what's next?" And the what ne- and the what's next uh, solved another problem um, because the you know, and I haven't really talked about kind of the the economic and and, and cultural impact of these stadiums on their surrounding neighborhoods but financially stadiums are very have, have been very hit or miss propositions Camden Yards um, you know the, the two stadiums that are there baseball and the, and the football stadium they helped keep uh, the Inner Harbor viable and, and relevant into the 2010s Um you know cleveland the gateway people are you know coming into into the city of cleveland and gateway again was considered to be a a tremendous success uh you know the lodo district in denver again considered to be a, a real success um I think the story is much more complicated and complex than build stadium and things happen. But then there were a lot of stadiums where they were built mall parks that were built downtown and just didn't really have a lot of juice. Didn't really create or, or or a a tourist bubble that was worth coming into or, um, you know, provide that, that boost that cities were looking for. And, what the mall park village allows is it 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 it, it makes it 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 aligns everyone's interest because teams want as much money coming to them cities want economic development happening outside the stadium well when the economic you know the, the economic develop, you know a restaurant just outside of the stadium gates well If you're the team owner, uh, a a, a visitor going into the, a fan going into the restaurant, spending $25 on a meal is $25. The fans not spending inside the building, but you make the team, the landlord and encouraging the team to develop the neighborhood outside the stadium. Well, everybody is, 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 Everybody's interests are aligning, and rather than cities building it and you know hoping that he will come, as they say in Field of Dreams, build it and he will come. Um, well, they build it, and the team develops rather than hoping that development happens. So it's it's a real winner for. Everybody involved, I, I won't call it a real winner, because economically, financially, it, it, it's, it's fraught, and uh, the numbers just don't make sense.
1: Um,
0: but in, in these mall park villages, teams are developing these neighborhoods, and at least uh, on, on the surface, it seems like a win-win. Uh, because economic development occurs, the city wants that, and teams now have the ability to make more money, and that's a good thing for the teams. And if you look around at the most recent stadium projects uh, in in Texas, in Atlanta, uh, the proposition in Oakland at, at Howard Terminal that failed, uh, what they're going to do in Las Vegas, what what the what. Uh, the Tampa uh, Bay Rays want uh, in in, in St. Petersburg. It's about development of the surrounding neighborhoods, and and, and I think that's the direction where uh, state you know, stadiums are are you know mall parks are definitely going because the mall park has been financially maximized. So you know, let's go outside the, the, let's go outside the stadium. Let's go in into the neighborhoods and find the economic development activity, uh, opportunities that exist beyond the gates. And that's where we're seeing things going.
1: Wow. Really, uh, really interesting. Uh, thank you for that. I'm curious. uh, I'll be following along, you know, uh, curious to see where it goes. Um, I have two concluding questions for you. Uh, The first, if you could give our listeners one uh, baseball stadium recommendation to visit for whatever reason you want, which one would it be? And then the second one, uh, what are you working on now and where can we find more of your work?
0: In terms of baseball stadiums, uh, it's a question that I get asked. Which which is your favorite
1: baseball stadium? That's not what I said. I said, which one would you recommend a visit for?
0: Oh, there's so many of them. Uh, I'll I'll, say... I'll say San Diego because it is my favorite uh, of the new generation of stadiums, and frankly, it's San Diego. It's in the it's in a great area of, of San Diego. A lot of development around uh, East Village, right next to the Gaslight District, and architecturally, uh, Petco Park is something else and really special. Uh, and of course, it doesn't hurt that it's San Diego.
1: Um, and then where can, where can we find your work? What are you working on next?
0: My, my, my next project, uh, uh, I'm still f- figuring that out, but, uh, as part of the physical cultural studies unit in, in, in at the university of Maryland, uh, Over the last 25 years, we have done so much work in Baltimore. Uh, David Harvey calls it a laboratory sample of U.S. urbanism, and... You know, whether it's my work on Camden Yards or uh, Brian Clift ran with the homeless, Ron Maurer uh, studied uh, uh, Be More Fit, a, a, a wonderful fitness program. Uh, I mean, so many people in physical cultural studies have, have done such tremendous work on so many aspects of physical culture around baltimore uh i've been talking with uh, david andrews who is the the leader of our program uh and uh, it, it's just been one of those projects uh we have discussed for a really long time saying somebody should do this and i think i'm going to be that somebody
1: awesome well uh we'll be looking forward to reading that and hopefully getting that one on new books network as well um... Thank you for your time, and congratulations. Don't forget to check out Mallparks, Columbia University Press on July 15th. Uh, uh,
0: Cornell University. Cornell
1: University Press. All right. Thank you, Dr. Friedman.
0: Thank you.